We launched a study last week that we're calling, uh, well, it's the life of Paul. And uh, what we're doing uh, would be called um, a uh, kind of a harmony of the life of Paul. You've probably seen in bookstores a harmony of the life of Jesus where they they put everything in kind of chronological order, all the different uh, gospels to, to give you a chronological look. We're doing something similar to that where we're looking at Paul's life uh, as we have it in the scriptures by reading, especially in the book of Acts, some pertinent scriptures, but then some other scriptures that uh, reinforce what was happening. Uh, so it's a little bit of an unusual approach to the life of Paul. But Paul's such an important character, such an interesting Christian, uh, and, and all, uh, you usually don't have much time to talk about him personally when you're in his letters. Uh, when you're going through Acts and all that. And so we're, we're just concentrating on his life. Last week, if you were with us, we talked a lot about Paul's ancestry, where he came from as a Jew. And this week, uh, the, well, the title of our message is Mirror, Mirror on the Wall, Who's the Pharisee of All? Uh, we're going to talk about Paul as a Pharisee. And so what I do is I'll read some scriptures. They'll be up on the screen. You can jot them down. We don't necessarily uh, have to turn there. That's why they're up there, but you can jot them down for your notes. And uh, then we'll comment on uh, that aspect of Paul's life tonight, the fact that he was a Pharisee. And so Acts 22.3 would be the place to start where Paul said, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, I was zealous toward God as you all are today. Then in Acts 23, 6, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. Acts 26, 4 and 5. Paul says, my manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. Galatians 1.14, I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. <clears throat> and then in Philippians 3.5, I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee. Now, you know as a Christian that if you were to call someone a Pharisee, uh, it's, it's an insult. It's received as an insult. That's, that's one of the, you know, the things that you don't want to do. I mean, it, so you're in an argument with another Christian and you say, you Pharisee. I mean, that's a, that's a real fighting word. That's like a dirty thing to do to, to another Christian. Uh, and maybe it should be. I'm not totally defending that, but that wasn't always the case. We have to understand where these Pharisees came from and what was going on. There were three significant religious movements, or we would call them sects, among the Jews. The Essenes, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees. The Essenes flourished from the second century BC into the first century. They lived in various cities, but they would congregate in communal life dedicated to asceticism, voluntary poverty. They would do daily immersions uh, in water and they would abstain from worldly pleasures, including for some groups uh, that meant celibacy. Uh, 
Josephus, the Jewish historian, records that Essenes existed in large numbers. Thousands lived throughout Roman Judea. They weren't all congregated in one place, but where they were, they would congregate together in communal life. The Essenes have gained fame in modern times as a result of the discovery in an extensive group of religious documents known as the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are commonly believed to be the Essene library at their community of Qumran. Uh, And so that's how modern uh, thinkers and scholars and people like ourselves have heard of the Essenes. Our modern equivalent of the Essenes would be monks living in a monastery. And so one way of looking at this, if you were a first century individual, obviously we're talking about Jews here, if you were a first century Jew or a first century individual wanting to be spiritual, uh, you could be an Essene, but I would guess most of us aren't going to sign up for the Essene sect. I mean, we're, we're not really wanting to be living separate lives, uh, ascetic lives in a monastery celibate. And so we're not going to be Essenes. You probably would not have been a Sadducee either. They tended to be wealthy and held powerful positions, including that of chief priests and high priest, and they held the majority of the 70 seats of the ruling council called the Sanhedrin. The Sadducees were responsible for the temple and its services. Most of them actually did live in or near Jerusalem. They weren't really scattered all over the empire uh, the way the Essenes were. They lived in or near Jerusalem because they uh, had a lot of uh, political things going on and they were involved with temple life. They worked very hard to keep the peace by agreeing with the decisions of Rome Uh, And they seemed to be more concerned with politics than they were with religion. And and so they were in cahoots, you might say, with the Roman government to keep the peace in Judea. Regarding their beliefs, they did have a belief system. They denied any resurrection from the dead. Now, they thought it was not explicitly taught in the Jewish scriptures. They were, you know how we have King James-only people today? If you're not reading from the King James, you're reading from a devil Bible. Well, these people were, you know, Hebrew scripture only. If it's not specifically mentioned in the scriptures, then it's not true and there's no speculation. Uh, Of course, Jesus blew them all out when he said, he mentioned that, you know, uh, the psalmist was talking about resurrection when he mentioned, you know, the son of David and all of that. So, you know, resurrection is mentioned in the Old Testament, Uh, But they said, no, it's not. So they didn't believe in any resurrection from the dead. Uh, Obviously, therefore, they did not believe in any afterlife, either in heaven or hell. They were what we would call today annihilationists who said the soul perished at death. And along with all of that, they denied the existence of angels and demons. They denied that there was a spirit world. Uh, And so they they were pretty dry Uh, And so you wouldn't have been an Essene and you wouldn't have been a Sadducee. The truth is, you and I might have been Pharisees during this time. The Pharisees were faithful Jews who opposed the efforts of the surrounding culture to influence classical Jewish life. That effort was called Hellenization. We mentioned it last week uh, after the Greek culture. And so 
first Alexander the Great, then the Romans wanted everybody to be uh, Hellenized or become Grecian in their way of thinking so that, uh, you know, everybody adopted the customs of the Roman Empire. And the Pharisees were against that. They wanted to remain separate. Uh, their very name means separation. It is some kind of a derivative that means to be separate or to stay separate. They were mostly middle-class businessmen, and they were well-liked and well-respected by the common people. They lived throughout the empire. They could be found anywhere there was a Jewish population, and most of the rabbis who taught in the weekly services of the synagogue were Pharisees. They may have had their origins as far back as the Babylonian captivity. Ezra spoke of those who, and I quote, separated themselves from the filthiness of the heathen of the land to seek the Lord God. Nehemiah spoke of those, quote, of the seed of Israel who separated themselves from strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. These same men, quote, entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's laws. One of our favorite verses in the Old Testament would have to be Malachi 3.16. I know it's one of mine. It reads, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. Scholars will tell you that that is referring to Jews who were Pharisees at that time. They were the separatist Jews, the Pharisees, who were uh, talking to one another about the things of the Lord. Now, unique to the Pharisees was that uh, in their study of the law of Moses, they built up a body of interpretation and application which acquired equal authority for them with the Scripture. These are the teachings Jesus would call the traditions of men. Their original intent in doing so was to preserve the law amidst changing cultures and institutions to preserve Judaism. And so what they would do is they would take the Old Testament law of Moses and these questions would come up. I mean, if you're trying to keep the law uh, and, and let's say you're a tailor, you run deluxe cleaners or, and you, you're a tailor and, and, and so you're reading in the law about doing no work on the Sabbath and so you would say, Rabbi, what constitutes the work of a tailor on the Sabbath? And the rabbis would get together in that particular culture at that particular time, and they'd say, well, that's a tough one. Uh, we think that you can't even carry a sewing needle on the Sabbath because that, that's the uh, instrument of your employment, of your work, and so if you carry that sewing needle, it constitutes work. And so they would interpret the law. Now, we look at that and we think, oh, that's silly, that's ridiculous, but that's because we're under grace. We're looking back from a grace position. These individuals wanted to honor God, and they thought, well, okay, if the law says this, then, you know, they weren't going necessarily for the spirit of the law, uh, you know, but, but they were trying to interpret the law in each generation, in each situation, so that they could remain separate and not be sucked into the surrounding culture, not become like the Gentile population. So for that, I give them props. Obviously, they went too far. Jesus said, your traditions are traditions of men. In some ways, and I, I say this in a non-derogatory way, just in a factual way, in some ways, they're like the Roman Catholic Church of today, which believes that the teachings of the church are of equal authority with the Word of God. In fact, if the Word of God in some way 
contradicts the teachings of the church. The teachings of the church are to be preferred. And so it's that kind of a situation. According to the first century historian Josephus, the Pharisees were also what we would call a political interest group. They had their goals for society and they sought to achieve them through political action. They were always around to gain access to power and thereby influence society to a new commitment to a stricter Jewish way of life. They sound, and I again mean this with all sincerity, like the Tea Party of today, at least as to their desire to reform society according to, we would say, the Word of God, or maybe they would say the Founding Fathers or something like that. And so, so these guys, when you really get into who these guys were, I mean, obviously, they're spun out in their traditions and their self-righteousness and all that, but they're not the evil individuals that we take, make them out to be. We have to have a, a real understanding of who these guys were. Jesus frequently rebuked the Pharisees, that's true, and they deserved it, but he was often among them, even dining with them, seeking to reach them. I don't know of any occasion in Scripture on which he had close contact with either Sadducees or Essenes. I mean, you look at Jesus and he's always going head to head with the Pharisees, and of course he's always right and they're always wrong. But the, the Sadducees, he didn't have much to do with them. They didn't even care about Jesus. They were so unspiritual until it became a big political football that they had to deal with. And the Essenes were off in their little communities thinking that everybody was lost. There were many sincere Pharisees. Nicodemus, the famous Nick at night talk with Jesus. That man was a Pharisee. He was a, a, I mean, he was wrong, but he was a sincere seeker. Joseph of Arimathea, who would take the body of Jesus and arrange for its proper burial in his tomb. He was a Pharisee. The Pharisees' strict observance on matters of purity needs to be understood as an expression of their belief that God would in the future vindicate his true people from their present corrupted regime and that his people, the true Israel, would be identified by their faithful observance to the law. Again, I'm not defending them. I'm just pointing out that they were the spiritual Jews whom the people looked up to because they were committed to restoring what had been lost through subjection to foreign rulers. And so we have to, we have to take them at face value. When Paul talks about being a Pharisee, he didn't mean it in a derogatory sense. Uh, you know, sometimes we think when we read Paul's testimony, it's like, he, like some of us would say, well, I was a drug dealer or I was a drunkard, or I was, you know, whatever. And when Paul says, I was a Pharisee, he's not saying that. He's, he's, he's acknowledging that he was zealous for God and had a jealousy for the things of God. One biographer of Paul's I'm reading put it like this. He said, from his mother's knee, he had learnt of a God at once righteous and loving, of a divine law given for mankind's total welfare, of a people designed to be God's agents in the world, of a future age when God's will would be universally done. Now, Paul probably lived in Tarsus till he was 11 or 12 years old, since most Jewish parents put their sons in training at the age of 12. We've seen last week and this week, he says, I'm, a, I'm from Tarsus in Cilicia. And so he would have been there at least for the first 12 years of his life. 
The educational philosophy of the Jews at that time was as follows, and I'm quoting from uh, a book, The Life and Epistles of St. Paul. It says, at five years of age, let children begin the scripture. At 10, the Mishnah. At 13, let them be subjects of the law. Now, the Talmud, you've probably come across that word or read that in your studies. The Talmud is a summary of Jewish oral law or traditions that evolved after centuries of scholarly effort uh, by the rabbis who lived uh, in and around the empire until the beginning of the Middle Ages. The Talmud has two main components, the Mishnah, a book of the law, and the rabbinical commentary on the Mishnah called the Gemara. At the age of 10, the Mishnah was added to the curriculum of Scripture. The Mishnah was in oral form in Paul's day, so the teacher would recite a lesson, and then the student would recite the lesson back to the teacher word for word. At the age of 15, Gemara was added, containing the discussion of the rabbis down through the centuries. And so that was kind of the, uh, the schooling of the young uh, uh, individuals from age... Uh, at their young ages. Now, we we read earlier that Paul was taught, he said, at the feet of Gamaliel. It's hard to know exactly when Paul would have been sent to Jerusalem to be taught at the feet of Gamaliel, but piecing things together, historians say he may have been around 16 years old. So he had all of this upbringing in his strict Pharisee home, and then he started learning the scriptures and the Talmud and the Mishnah and the Gemara, and then at around 16 years of old, he went to the Bible Institute of Jerusalem, Bioja, uh, and, and, uh, and, and he sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel was quite a force among Jews. He was one of only seven rabbis in their history to be called Rabban, which was, I'm told, the highest title that you could call a rabbi. So he had lots of, he had hash marks on his sleeves, you know, or trophies or whatever they did to designate him a rabban. Some have suggested that Paul would have been the successor to Gamaliel as a chief or the chief rabbi. A.T. Robertson writes, it's all speculation, but it's interesting. He says, what did Gamaliel think of his brilliant pupil? One would like to have a word from him, but the position of leadership to which he will soon attain shows that the master's approval rested on Saul. Perhaps the old teacher looked proudly on the young man from Tarsus as a possible successor. When Saul left Jerusalem, he was to all intents and purposes the one young Jew in all the world who had the most in prospects before him. He'd been educated as a rabbi and the career of a rabbi lay before him, but that was not all. Many a young rabbi lived in comparative obscurity This young rabbi had great friends at Jerusalem who could help him to the highest places as he proved worthy. Now, interestingly, it's reported in the book of Acts, uh, Gamaliel took a neutral position with regards to Christianity. There was that episode where he told the Sanhedrin, hey, you guys better just leave them alone. If they're of God, they'll prosper. If they're not of God, they won't prosper. And so Gamaliel was kind of neutral when it came to this uprising called Christians. Uh, Paul certainly disagreed with him because he was one of the chief persecutors of the early church. Uh, and so, so that's Paul, the Pharisee of Pharisees, who grew up in a strict Pharisaical home and then went and was taught by the greatest Pharisee of the day, Gamaliel. And despite Gamaliel's uh, sort of tolerant position, 
uh, Paul was so zealous and so jealous as a Pharisee that he wanted to destroy the church. Doesn't it strike you odd that the man who would be the apostle to the Gentiles would be a lifelong, classically trained Pharisee among Pharisees, a Hebrew among Hebrews? It would seem as though Paul would have greater success among people just like him. I mean, if I'm looking at the life of the Apostle Paul from a distance, I see God grooming him to be an apostle to the Jews. After his conversion, Paul himself assumed he would work among his own people. He says, he and Jesus have a conversation in Acts 22, beginning in verse 17. Now, it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I was in a trance And I saw him, Jesus, saying to me, make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. And then Jesus said to me, depart, I will send you far from here to the Gentiles." What's that all about? Sending the Pharisee of all Pharisees to the Gentiles, it actually seems silly. It's certainly not what we would do today. I mean, just honestly, and I'm not saying this to criticize myself or anybody, if somebody came in and said, hey, here are my credentials. I'm a Jew among Jews, a Pharisee among Pharisees, the Hebrew of Hebrews. Where do you see me fitting into your missions scheme? We would say, well, you're going to Jerusalem, brother where you can talk man to man, mano y mano with, you know, these guys and, and, and all of that. Of course, we wouldn't, you know, that, that scenario. Today, it would be a, a, an athlete or a scholar or somebody, you know, from whatever walk of life or background. We would think, wow, God has raised you up to go back to this same group of people that you're the champion of and minister to them. Looking at the history of the early church, we can see the wisdom of God. All of the first converts to Christianity were Jews. Almost from the beginning, there was a sense that a person must be a Jew in order to become a Christian. At least there was a great confusion about it that led to serious doctrinal errors being promoted. Taking the gospel directly to Gentiles at all was suspect. When Gentiles seemed to be getting saved without also being circumcised and keeping the law of Moses, there was great opposition. The danger of corrupting Christianity with Judaism was a very real danger. It's the subject of the book of Hebrews. As the Jews there addressed were returning to Judaism to avoid persecution. The the Jews were persecuting Christians, Jews who had become Christians, And those converted Jews were going back to Judaism and saying, we'll be Christians and Jews at the same time. And the writer was saying, yeah, that's not going to work. Go ahead and be persecuted. Take joyfully the spoiling of your goods. Run with endurance this race. Lay aside the sin which easily besets you. Don't go back into Judaism. More to our point... We see a time in the life of the Apostle Peter in which he and Barnabas were influenced by Judaizers to quit eating meals with Gentile Christians. 
The so-called incident at Antioch is recounted in Galatians where Paul says, this is Galatians 2 beginning in verse 11, he says, now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed for before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. These were Judaizing teachers who taught that Gentiles needed to also be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be genuinely saved. And so Peter was enjoying his bacon. He was eating bacon cheeseburgers and all this stuff. And then these guys came and he said, well, I, I can't eat with the Gentiles anymore. I, can only, I have to eat kosher with the Jews. And it says in verse 13 of Galatians 2, the rest of the Jews played the hypocrite with him. Even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. And so Peter, who was a pillar in the church, when he began to be drawn into this Judaizing separation, Barnabas, who usually encouraged everybody, he got drawn into it. And then the whole church started thinking there needs to be a separation between Gentiles and Jews. And so Paul said, yeah, that's not going to happen. And he publicly rebuked the apostle Peter. And he said, you're to be blamed. This is wrong. And he corrected him. God did not choose just any Jew to go to the Gentiles. He chose a Pharisee of Pharisees who knew firsthand the awful emptiness of religious observance in order to try to attain and maintain a right standing with God. There was no fear that Paul would ever look back and become once again ensnared by the law, not when he had so fully been saved by grace. Paul is actually the one guy that you could send to the Gentiles, knowing what turmoil was going to happen in that first century church. The one guy who could say, I am the great Pharisee, the Pharisee of Pharisees, the Jew of Jews, the Hebrew of Hebrews. Look at my lineage. Look at my past. Look at my teaching. Look at everything about me. I even killed people for, for the cause of, of Judaism. Something Gamaliel wouldn't do. He was some kind of tolerant liberal. I was the real Pharisee of my day. I'm here to tell you that it's an empty shell. There's nothing in it that can bring eternal life. And if you think I'm going to circumcise Titus, you got another thing coming. I'm going to take him to the Gentiles as an uncircumcised individual, and, and that's just the way it is. And so Paul, Paul, when he was in Jerusalem, he could still do Jewish rituals. He could do all the thing. He was, you know, it, but because to the Jew, he could be a Jew. He didn't want to stumble anybody. It had nothing to do with the law as a means of righteousness. And so now you think, wow, God, you're pretty smart. We would have sent Paul to the Jews when all the time Peter would have been out here working among the Gentiles and, that and literally the, the church would have never gotten out of the first century. It would have never gotten out of Jerusalem had not God had the wisdom and the foresight to raise up these individuals. Now, a couple of things suggest themselves uh, for us. First, we may not have been deeply entrenched in some religion. Uh, we can't necessarily relate directly to Paul and his situation, but we don't need to have been in order to reject any and all efforts to add works of righteousness to our walk with God. 
And so, you know, it's just as dangerous today to fall in with a group that starts to tell you that, um, are, are you, you're a Christian? Yeah. Okay. Uh, how, uh, have you been baptized? Yeah, I got baptized. Oh. How were you baptized? And in whose name were you baptized? Well, as a matter of fact, I was baptized by immersion in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Oh, that's going to be a problem. <laughs> and they add some kind of crazy thing. Or, um, you know, they, they tell you it's a good thing that you've been baptized because, you know, if you die unbaptized, you, you go to hell because baptism is necessary for salvation. And, or maybe it's the Sabbath, or maybe it's something. There's always something people want to add. Or, you know, even us, we have our own personal rules. You have rules that you live by, right? I mean, you, you sometimes see people doing things, and you think, oh, oh, oh. Should you as a Christian be doing that? Because I, I, I don't do that. I can't do that or whatever. And, you know, that's not my rule. And that's okay because, you know, there are Christians who can eat meat sacrificed to idols and there's Christians who can't. But we all have to get along. Uh, what happens is, though, when I come to you and I say, hey, this thing here that's not an, you know, it, it's not really an issue of sin, but I'm telling you that if you do this, you're probably not spiritual. You're probably not a real Christian because you don't act just like me and have my rules and regulations. And so we have our own legalistic ways of doing things, so we just need to be careful and be champions of grace. Not of grace to sin, not of bringing sin, more and more sin into our lives because, after all, God is gracious, but grace, to look at things as they really are and to think, hey, I'm saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. I'm not more saved than you because I only go to G-rated movies. You're not less saved than me because you've seen a PG movie. We should all agree that we can't see X-rated movies. I think that's a given. It may not be in a few years, but right now that's kind of a given, I think. But, you know, we can't, this is the kind of thing that we make application. Now, second, we obviously need to abandon our own limited ideas about how to best give out the gospel. As I said earlier, we probably would not have looked at a map and said the best person for reaching the Gentile world outside Jerusalem is going to be the greatest Pharisee of our generation. I mean, seriously, can you see the church planning session? If you're on that board and you're thinking, okay, we, how are we going to take the gospel beyond, you know, this, I think the best person to reach the, the pagan Gentile is the greatest Pharisee that we've produced in this generation. What are you talking about? Are you, what have you been smoking? That's crazy. We need to find a famous Gentile and get that person saved. Uh, uh, you know, the, 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 whoever just won the last you know, Olympics or, or some celebrity in the Roman world, we need to get that person saved and then flocks of Gentiles will get saved. And the truth of the matter is, uh, God is wanting us to discover his plan for our lives, to discover the good works that he's before ordained that we should walk in them. And we have no idea in our own wisdom where we would best serve the Lord based on our own background and talent and abilities. I think this is one of the most profound things I've learned about Paul so far is that his background prepared him for something that we would have never dreamed he needed preparation for 
and that is to save the church from Judaism, uh, the Gentile church. It's, it's incredible. And so you and I, we need to throw off the restraints of this is how I was raised, this is my culture, this is my education and all. These, therefore, are the people that I can reach. These are the people God has prepared me to reach. For all you know, God has prepared you to reach a whole group of people or type of person or individual that you have absolutely nothing in common with. And so that just frees me to realize that I'm just God's servant, that he can use me anytime any place with anybody, language barriers aside, social barriers aside, um, all of that can be leveled out, evened out. And you kind of see it as we close, see it a little bit uh, with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, don't you? I mean, you know, what is the treasurer of Ethiopia going to do? Is he really going to listen to a a bum on the side of the road uh, on the, you know, as he's going back to Ethiopia? And the answer was, yeah. Yeah, he did. I mean, Philip, for all intents and purposes, was a homeless man, a guy on, sitting along the side of the road waiting for a handout. But God knew that he had the authority to witness to this great political individual of his day, the treasurer, the secretary of the treasury. It'd be like if you, you know, were, were able to share with the secretary of the treasury. Maybe you're, you know, you're, you're out here and there's a motorcade going by and somehow the car breaks down and it's the secretary of the treasury and he gets out and you say, do you know what you've been reading back there in that bulletproof limo? No, how would I know that? And you go, well, let me tell you about Jesus. You know, I mean, that's the scene. And, and so God does these incredible things so that we will not have blinders and restraints in our life and just say, Lord, use me. This person's famous. This person's a bum. What's the difference if I talk to a homeless man or if I run into a famous person or just an average person? You just want to use me, don't you, Lord? Yeah, I sure do. Amen? All right, praise the Lord.